it inspires awe in me every day, like awe, because it shouldn't have been possible. Based on the rules, it shouldn't have been possible. I dropped out of university because I had a mental breakdown. Like it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not supposed to be respected. I'm not supposed to be listened to. I'm not supposed to be significant in my field. And I am because I never believed people when they told me that it wasn't possible. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves, and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. I guess to start, Michelle. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being on. It's not a straight line. My pleasure. It, uh, it was a pleasure to be connected through Brad Furtney, who we both have tremendous admiration for. He's, uh, he's made a huge difference in my career over the years, and I know you guys have made a difference in each other's careers over the years. That gentleman, that gentleman was born to lead. So, yeah, he's, he's one of my favorite people for sure. That's awesome. And I, and I heard a lot, a few things from your podcast. So I've got a lot of stuff I'd like to cover today. Okay. But uh, I mean, as a way of introduction, Michelle leads MF Consulting and you have, there's seems to be four buckets. So the services are leadership transformation, strategic facilitation, sales growth, organizational alignment, you believe that one individual can be a catalyst for monumental change and that with the right attitude, anything's possible. Your bio Absolutely. also says you were the first ever female to be hired on the factory floor of IKO <laughs> Industries, which yes. I read is roofing and building materials. Yes. It's a and shingles factory in Brampton, Ontario. <laughs> and boy, were they scared when I walked in. And you also uh, you also went on to help build or be a main player in building a mid-sized travel firm uh, that became an organization recognized as one of the 50 best employers in Canada. Uh, I read that it, yeah. you had a memorable moment coaching Canada's 2010 Olympic team with how to have a gold medal life. That was definitely a gold medal moment for me, being able to coach <laughs> Canada's Canadian Olympic athletes for the 2010 game. So it was amazing. Such a privilege. And Michelle is a certified professional coactive coach and a certified administrator of the leadership circle profile. That is Michelle. And we're going to learn a lot about her today. And I guess my first question I, I saw, I think it's Georgie. Michelle just yes. got a new Bernadoodle. So how is that going? Well, let's say that you, you might hear her for sure. I am trying to be a better dog owner. It's my first ever dog. So we're doing okay. We're on week three. And right before we started this recording, she um, left me a little present on the living room carpet. So that's a, that's how dog ownership goes at the beginning. Nothing, nothing like getting the smell and the scent ready for a call like this. You right, know? Exactly. exactly. She was just, I'm here and I want you to know I'm here. So Michelle, within one call of, of us meeting, there were, there were a lot of emotions and things struck with me and you seemed to connect almost immediately. And I, I've read that, some people where you see yourself as a bit of a mirror. So that's something I would like to get into. But for starters, 
what were you like as someone growing up when you thought about careers and where you might want to go? When I was little, so, and I would say probably around grade four, I had this wonderful teacher named Mr. Parker. And in Mr. Parker's class, we talked a lot about Canadian politics. And the dream was definitely born there. I had a very long plan that I was going to go to school, become a lawyer, and then get into politics. And my mom and I had this dream that I was going to become the first female prime minister of Canada. And then I started really watching politicians and listening to politicians. And I realized that given my personality, that was never going to work because I was too much of a straight talker and I liked to answer questions as they were asked and I like to call them as I see them. So that politics just wasn't a profession that was going to make me happy. And then in university, I kind of lost my way, if I'm honest. I, um, I did study political science, but I knew I didn't want to go into politics. And then I started to think twice about law school going to university was, was difficult for me. And um, Jordan, we talked a little bit. I uh, certainly have some history of mental health struggles in my family, like a long family history of that. And it had showed up in my teenage years, but it got very serious during my university education. So that really sort of caused me to pause, hit the pause button. I left university and then I went on this circuitous journey of, of what I wanted to do. I had no idea. It was just, I knew I needed to work. I was always had an incredibly healthy work ethic earning money. My stepfather to pay for university. I didn't have parents who paid for university. He made me this thermometer on plywood and he hung it on the back of my bedroom door. And every time I got a paycheck from all of the factory jobs that I had, and one summer I had three jobs, he would make me scribble it in with red marker as I deposited the check because I remember I needed, at the time, this will tell everybody how old I am, I needed $8,000 so that I could last the year at university. So it was about money to me. It wasn't so much about passion. I found my passion for leadership much later in my career. After I'd done a little bit of this and a little bit of that, I was always good at what I did. But I connected to what I was meant to do in my life probably later in my 30s. And do you remember, did any of those original jobs on the factory floors i i read i think ikeo is in toronto where all those roles in toronto and what are the learnings or the things you think back to from those times with the luxury of hindsight what i will tell you is that my personality was very clear very early on so through school as high as grade seven and eight on grade seven and eight i was on the students council grade nine i was the youngest leader um, of one of our main activities that grade nine students got to participate in the students council, but they didn't get to lead events. And as a grade nine student, I got to lead an event. So I was, I was always doing something that I wasn't supposed to do. Always that, that followed me my whole life. I considered it a bad trait for a long time because, you know, obviously when you're bending rules and you're coming up against how people like to do things, they don't often say, yay, here comes Michelle. They, <laughs> they roll their eyes and they go, oh man, like what's she going to do now? So I had this streak in me very, very early. And through all of the things, whether it was students council and, and, and being a leader in grade nine or whether it was going in and getting this job at IKO. So at the time, IKO was in Brampton. They used to have this Ontario 
manpower for students in the summer. And you would go in and uh, young men and women would look for jobs. And if you were a girl, you got a secretarial job and those jobs paid $7 an hour. And if you were a boy, there was a whole board for all the factory jobs and those jobs paid $12 to $15 an hour. And I'd grown up in Ontario housing. So I knew sort of the, the power of money and more importantly, what it meant if you didn't have money. And I was like, well, I, I need the $15 an hour. And so they posted for this job and my name is spelt with one L. So it's M-I-C-H-E-L-E. So a lot of people read that name and they think it's Michael. So when I called for an interview, they said, yes, please come in. And then in walked this girl. And the man said to me, well, we don't hire women. This is a, this is a factory floor job. We don't hire women. And I looked at this man who I'd never met, who was much older than me. And I said, well, that's actually against the law. So if you, <laughs> and I, I was terrified. I didn't, you know, I, I knew I had to stand up for myself. I was terrified and I wasn't going to give in to the fear. And I just said, you have to give me a shot. And if you don't like me after a couple of days, that's fine. If I can't do the work, but you got to give me, you got to give me a shot. And he said, fine. And he walked me onto the factory floor and all of the men walked off. So there I was 15 years old. And the men were like, no, this isn't safe. We don't want her here. There's no place for her here. We like, not only is she a woman, but, but she's a young girl. We don't want her here. And they didn't even have facilities for me. So the, the lunchroom was in the male's washroom. So I couldn't, I had to go to the executive offices and sit with the secretary to eat my lunch. So the men got threatened to get fired and said, you have to let her work. And then they decided that what they were going to do to get me to quit was to give me all the terrible jobs. So as the shingles, these hot, like the smell is heinous. The shingles are going through this enormous factory floor. And they, when they're cooling, they're running along this conveyor belt and I'm bad with measurements, Jordan, but it's like 50 feet up. And so if they got stuck, somebody had to go up and free them. So guess who they sent up? Me thinking, well, she wouldn't be able to climb and she's not going to be able to do that. So off I went and I just did it. And so the, the more they threw at me, the more I just became determined that I was going to make it work. And that concept was really about you can feel the fear, but don't make your choice based on fear. Feel that fear and then decide what it is that you want and go in that direction. So I learned at a very young age to become friends with being afraid. Why do you think you came across that? I mean, I don't know how vulnerable you want to get with it, Michelle, but you did speak with me a little bit about, well, you, you mentioned mental health, which I've dealt mm -hmm. with as well. And then you, you, it sounds like you grew up and you didn't have, your family didn't have the most money growing up. And I believe you said in a podcast, there were, there were some nights you went to bed and you didn't know where the next meal was coming from. 100%. I mean, you know, I, I, my mother has passed six years ago, but God bless her. She was something else. I got a lot of my strength from my mother as well, but this woman at the time, and again, this is a, this is an old timers thing. We didn't have enough food. There were, I have two older sisters. And so there were four women in the family and we didn't have enough food for all of us. So my mom would make what little food we had and then she would be starving. But what she bought were these diet suppressants. And so she, those would actually be in our, in our bin where you keep your vegetables. Like we didn't have any vegetables. We had this box and they were called AIDS candies, A-Y-D-S. And at the time I remember thinking, oh, my mom's like buying caramels and not sharing them with us. She is a really bad mom. And they were diet suppressants. So she, she wouldn't notice her hunger. 
Um, and I just learned early on that not having money meant not having choice and that not having money, I could actually get really emotional with this, meant other people got to decide what opportunities were afforded to you. And that just got burned into me. That doesn't work for me. I don't want to be made fun of. You know, I, I told you the story about going into the byway down in the bottom where all of my rich friends were going into the high-end stores, Simpsons and Eaton's, and we couldn't afford to shop there. And so we had to walk into the basement and, and the best looking boy at school made fun of me. And then everybody the next day at school knew like Michelle shopped at the byway. And that's devastating when you're 13 and 14 years old. And I just thought I don't ever want to be in that position again. So I'm going to have to work hard and make opportunities for myself so that no one ever gets to decide what's possible for me. And that has been a key driver in my entire life. There was something else you said, and I'm not sure if it was on our call, but something I read, you said we're trained and socialized at a young age about things that aren't important. Can you speak with me a little bit about that? I, I think as a, in your profession now, you probably come across a lot of people that are still dealing with the things they've been trained and socialized with, even as adults and seniors in their in their roles but it sounds very like successful people jordan right like yeah. like people who you would never think are still dealing with that kind of stuff like ceos and multi multi-millionaires are still dealing with that kind of stuff what we were socialized with when we were kids and i you know what what is what i think is important and what i think is sad and i certainly would like to find a way to to solve this schools and understandably so don't don't get me wrong I, I love teachers and I love the school system and I understand why it works the way it does we have hundreds of thousands of people who have to go through systems and systems allow us to function in society right so if we have 36 million people in Canada everybody can't be doing their own thing we have to have some system to make life easier but sometimes those systems get away from us and they become the most important thing. And the people going through the system get lost. I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. And systems don't allow for people to identify what's important to me. What matters to me. We're taught very young to adapt and to follow the rules. But one of the critical things to career happiness and dare I say life happiness is actually honoring what's important to the individual. Learning where I have flexibility and latitude for cooperation to say yes to things and learning where no, I have to put up boundaries. But we don't allow in our school systems in particular or in our banking systems or, or, or for the individual to shine and for people to learn how to articulate what their needs are because they're supposed to follow the system. And so we're... we're we have a lot of people who think they're supposed to be a certain way. They know they're not. And how they interpret that is that somehow that they're broken or that they don't fit when really they're just unique and they're meant to honor a certain path. And what I would love for us to be able to do is to find the unique things in each child and honor that and find a way to have them harness that uniqueness versus try and cajole them and force them into following the rules. I know a lot of people probably listen to this are probably going, oh my God, that's too much pressure. But in terms of life satisfaction and this thing that we're all really, really fascinated with right now, which is purpose, everybody, you know, people come to me and they want to find their purpose. 
And the truth of the matter is, Jordan, they had their purpose, but they were told to squelch it. Like we all know what our purpose is. But when day after day after day, you're told not to honor that, not to pay attention to that, and just listen when the teacher says, well, you forget that you know what your purpose is. And so then it becomes about removing all those layers of control and reconnecting to your purpose. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the purpose is is beat out of a lot of people. And they'll say like, oh, you know, in five years, I'll launch my own business or do something I really like. And then all of a sudden you have kids or you get married or you did something else. And, and then it's like 10 years later. And then all of a sudden you're retired. And I have this online course. And one of the things at the beginning in the first part of the course I ask people what it is that they want. That's always a very funny question to ask people what they want. First, what happens is they'll tell you everything they don't want. Like eight out of 10 times, if I say to people, what is it that you want? They will go into a very long monologue about here are all the things that I don't want. Here are all the things that bug the tar out of me. And here's why I can't cope with any of that. All very relevant information, but it doesn't answer the question. We're, we're not even learning how to say, this is what I want because we don't know if it's possible. So once we learn <laughs> how, to, how to say what I want, you have to say, is that really what I want? Or is that what I was told I should want? Because I will tell you, almost every single person who has taken the course so far will say to me, I want to get married and I want to have children. Now, if you go to anybody who's married and has children <laughs> and ask them, how's it going? There are very few that are going to say, it is lollipops and fairy tales. My wife and I are just, we're just so connected and it's just really helpful. And my kids, they just bring me nothing but joy. That is not what people say to me. They say it's the hardest thing that they've ever done. Having children is the hardest thing that they've ever done. And, and they, well, there are those rewarding moments of, you know, the love that you get, the look in your eye and daddy, I love you. Mommy, I love you. It's hard and people completely underestimate how hard it is. And so is marriage. Marriage and children are the two hardest things that we do. And yet, when I ask young people, what is it that you want? They, they say that they want that, but with the, with the Kardashian overlay on it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's going to be like, oh my God, it's going to be the best thing I ever did. And if I can do the $2 million wedding, it's going to be amazing. And he will love me forever. And we're going to get along all the time. And we're so in sync. Like we just make decisions. Like, like we're just so connected. I don't know any married couple that actually says any of that. So we're socialized to think marriage. We're socialized to think babies. We're socialized to think buy a house. We're socialized to go to university. We're socialized that we have to make a lot of money. And those are all great things. Don't get me wrong. Those are wonderful things. But are they really what you, an individual, wants? And a lot of people can't answer that question. And, and what's the name of the course, Michelle? And where it's is called, it? Um, it's going to be launching online because okay. right now we can't offer it anywhere. <laughs> so it's going to launch online probably in January, fingers crossed. And I call it the practice because I believe that that is what life is. Life is a practice. And if we would stop... In our careers in particular, if we would stop thinking that there's this utopia and just think that it will be a constant series of learnings and that we take that learning, when we get that moment, we take that learning and then we put it into practice. 
And the more we put it into practice, the bigger that muscle goes. It is exactly the same as going to the gym. I, I really want people to start to use their minds and think of their minds as they think of their, their muscles. If I do bicep curls, that muscle gets stronger. If I believe that I can control my mind versus having my mind control me, I create neural pathways to support that. So there's a lot I want to dig into there, but uh, okay. <laughs> one thing I want I want you to describe is, you know, one of the reasons I started this is because I would love to speak with people about their career paths. So how do you describe your career from the factories to the travel company? I heard you even were a you delivered balloons for birthdays or were a clown <laughs> to make money, which kudos to you. That's incredible. And you went on to lead a company called Learn to Inc. You were mm -hmm. at Simpatico for a while, and then you, mm -hmm. you've now created your own company. How do you describe your career? Circuitous is the, is the word I would use, circuitous. And what I mean by that is, <laughs> which is why I, I love your podcast, right? It was anything but a straight line. It was the most complicated curly cue. Sometimes the, the line went off the page. <laughs> so then it, you know, veered back. It, it, was, it was complex. And it was fascinating. And it was hard. And it was full of amazing, joyful, completely unpredictable moments. And I will tell you... Two, two things that I feel pretty much every day are awe. I, I feel a lot of awe for where I am in my life as a 54-year-old, 55-year-old, sorry, woman who came from this difficult upbringing. Amazing mother, amazing sisters, but it was for sure a difficult upbringing. That I have what I have and that I do what I do and that I find the joy every day in what I do is it inspires awe in me every day, like awe, because it shouldn't have been possible. Based on the rules, it shouldn't have been possible. I dropped out of university because I had a mental breakdown. Like it's not, like I'm, you know, I'm not supposed to be respected. I'm not supposed to be listened to. I'm not supposed to be significant in my field. And I am because I never believed people when they told me that it wasn't possible. So I do have awe every day. And then the other thing I have every day is pride because I am proud of how, how hard I worked. I'm proud of the holes I've crawled out of. I'm proud of the times I dusted myself up, off and tried again. Look, Jordan, I was a terrible boss at some points in my life. Like I've been an amazing boss. I still have people call me and thank me and, and say that I made such an incredible difference in their lives. I have all of those wonderful things. And I know that if anybody who worked with me in my early years is <laughs> listening to this, they're going, she was horrid. She, she was inconsistent and, and bitchy and, and difficult. And you never knew who you were going to get one day to the next. I had those experiences too. I actually think, I often say to my clients, look, any mistake you think you've made, I guarantee you I've also made it. <laughs> and it, it gave me a lot of wisdom. So most days I have pride and awe. And I wish that someone had told me earlier to, to participate in my life, but also to be a watcher of my life. I wish somebody had told me 
to be in the audience watching my life so that I would have had an easier time putting the pieces together and been able to see patterns. Because I will tell you, the patterns were evident from such an early age, such an early age. And it, you know, as I look back on it, it all makes perfect sense. And I just wish I'd learned to listen to myself and watch myself more instead of I spent an inordinate amount of time feeling that I wasn't good enough and smart enough and capable enough and strong enough. And and I encounter people every day who feel the same. Very, very, very successful people who come to me every day. And that the fight inside is just difficult, but it's also very something that I'm very familiar with. So let's let's talk about not not feeling like you you were enough at times. You know, if you saw me in person, we haven't met in person. I'm a five five guy. I always thought I was too short uh, yeah. to become a leader in business. To yeah. find a girl I was super attracted to, and to do X, Y, and Z, and I wasted yeah. so much of my time dwelling on that. Yeah. And yeah. now I look back and I'm like, that was the biggest waste of time ever. So. How do what do you recommend to people if they're listening to this when they're like, I don't feel enough, I feel like I'm I'm an imposter. And the other thing, I know it's a second question, and I can repeat it again, is did you finish and graduate university? And if you didn't, do you have any advice to people that had that happen to them and are sitting there thinking, like, I'm screwed? Yeah, I, I would I would actually say there's there's two that I have done consistently throughout my life it started at a very young age. So I got help. So at a very young age, and I went to my first therapist at 13. Because I knew that the way that I was operating and how I was thinking was not sustainable. And through my life, I have at various times gone to see whether it's coaches or therapists or because coaching and therapy each have their place, right? Therapy is why am I the way I am, which is a very important discovery. And coaching says, okay, it doesn't matter why you are the way you are is how you're being working for you. And if not, what do you want to do? And so I have embraced outside support. I've gone to people who could guide me. And I've done that consistently. And I think we all need that. You know, when I, and I use this all the time in my, in my practice, you know, the top athletes in the world, like Tiger Woods is not Tiger Woods because he did it on his own. He had coaches who were working with him on nutrition, nutrition coaches. He had swing coaches. He had cardio coaches. He had, right. Like Brene Brown is, is the superhero when it comes to vulnerability. And if we can all embrace our vulnerability and stop thinking that success has to be, I know everything and I have all the answers, that is a huge help. So, so if you're struggling, seek help. And there's, you know, whether it's church groups or whether it's um, actual psychotherapists or whether it's really good friends who have more knowledge than you do or mentors at work, there are lots of ways to get help and support. And the second thing I will say to you, which I did do a podcast on this, I think we need to go back to spirituality. I think it's been lost. I'm not talking about religion. I think religion has been damaging to spirituality. But I think when we can embrace the fact that everything is bigger than us, that we are but a speck, and that there is something divine in the world. I, I, I say all the time, and I'm very thankful to my mother. She, she gave me the gift of spirituality. 
if I hadn't had my spirituality, if I hadn't had that guidance, there are times I wouldn't have made it. There were times where I, were, I was on my knees and I was like, okay, God, over to you. Now call it God, call it the universe, call it karma, call it Buddha, call it is, call it whatever you want to call it. But know that there's something bigger than you and that you as a human being have the ability to tap into that intergenerational, intergalactic, if you will, wisdom. It's, and when you practice it, it's shocking. So get help, know you're but a speck. Those, those two simple things and everybody will be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) How do you describe your business now? Because I've heard you say, you know, I didn't want to be a life, I didn't want to be called a life coach. And (laughs) you also made the comment, you know, executive coach was too narrow did it take you a while for people to really clue in or did you just not care what people, um, what people thought? Like, do you, well, I did care. I cared. I did care when I launched my, my own business. I did care because life coach, you know, you can turn on a lot of different sitcoms and there's a lot of jokes about life coaches. And I didn't want people to think I was a life coach. I get called a life coach all the time. And so I struggled probably for about two months about what I was going to call myself. And I landed on leadership coach and leadership came from my concept of leadership. And I strongly, strongly, strongly believe that before we engage in any type of organizational or community leadership, we need to engage in self-leadership. We need to change the definition of what leadership means. It is not about having the answers. It's not about command and control. It's not about amassing power. It's about creating a vision for what you want and then consciously choosing actions that will be congruent with that vision. And you got to start with yourself as an individual because, I mean, look, people that don't start with self, that's why I have such a successful business. So, you know, I make a lot of money because a lot of people didn't start with self-leadership. So they're successful. They're making millions of dollars. They've got the big titles. They've, you know, they've got everything and they are desperately not happy because they didn't go inward first. What are my values? What is important to me? And only you, the individual, can answer that. We can see right now, and I mean, politics is the obvious place to go, so I'm sorry that I'm being... Um, obvious and, and taking the easy route. But people who want to stay in power will do anything to stay in power. And those are the people where you can tell that they haven't said, what line will I not cross? What values do I need to honor while I'm staying in power? And when you know and identify what those values are only as an individual, you can then say to yourself, okay, it's my sole responsibility to protect those values and honor those values. And when I do that, I teach others to do that. And that will lead to satisfaction, peace, joy in your life. And also you then attract like-minded people and like-minded organizations. And you have to be in alignment. If you're going to go and get a job and you're going to work for, you know, I, there was a time where I used to work 70 hours a week and you're going to do that. And you're not in alignment with the organizational values the drudgery of that, the pain of that, the mental stress of that is enormous. Do I stand for the same things that my organization stands for? 
And a lot of people these days would answer no. So I've done, I, I talked to you about this, Jordan, before, but I've done two what I call cliff dives in my life. And that's where I had, you know, big jobs, big titles, was fairly respected in my field, driving fancy cars, all that kind of, you know, all that stuff. And I quit. And the, the, the number one rule when you have a job is you never quit until you have another job. And both times I quit and both times I quit because my values were at stake. And I knew that what was more important than a paycheck was my mental well-being, was my character. I quit so that I could protect my character. And we protect our character by, by protecting our values. And just really quickly, one of them was um, we had a CEO uh, who was beloved. It's actually where I learned about leadership and got passionate about leadership. He got let go. A new CEO was was put in. A North American CEO was put in. And integrity, I have this trigger of like, I'm honest to a fault. Talk to my friends and family and they would say, I wish she'd be a little less honest because I just believe in it so strongly. And so that's a big deal breaker for me. And the CEO uh, said something to one of my employees. The employee came in and, you know, I believe executives need to support each other. I, I believe leadership, organizational leadership and an executive team, you have to be singing from the same song sheet. So you you know, if one person says something, then you've got to be able to support that. And as my employee was sitting there and talking to me about it, I couldn't. I couldn't say, yes, that's true. And I knew in that moment that I had to go. And I literally, I talked to her about it. She left, called the CEO and said, I resigned. You you blatantly lied and I couldn't support you. And, and so I know my job here is done. And I was making up the time, like it was a lot of money. Again, right? The girl who had a mental nervous breakdown dropped into university. No, I didn't finish my degree. You know, I was making really good dough. I drove one of the first six series BMWs that came to Toronto. Me, A, a woman, B, a university dropout. And there was this, like, there were six in Toronto and I had one of them. And I quit my job that was allowing me to pay <laughs> because I didn't want to lie to my team. And so... That gave me, you know, that would typically strike a lot of fear in people. And it didn't because I felt so powerful that I was honoring one of my core values. What was the step or thoughts that went through your mind throughout the month after that? You know, a lot of people would be scared and I'm sure you were scared too. But for people listening that, you know, maybe, you know, and there are people as you would be able to empathize with that can't leave a job because they need to keep that roof over their heads. But for people that can, where their values, they feel like they're just stuffing them down. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What was the strategy you you took next? And what was the thing to tell yourself that that was the right decision? Because I guarantee there were people that looked at you and said, you're nuts. Everybody did. I don't, I didn't have one person that said that was a really great decision. I literally in my network, didn't have one person that said, good for you. Everybody thought I was not. And what I will tell you is, look, I, I wasn't one of those um, people where I had a nest egg put away and I was, you know, going to make, make the mortgage payments and stuff. What I, what I did prior, well, no, not prior. What I did immediately after quitting was I sort of looked at all of my payments and then I looked at all the things that I could sell or leases that I could bust. And I just got my head on straight about, you know, what I could control from a, from a budgeting perspective. Cause I did like that. 
about two days later after I quit, I went, holy shit, Ferrari. But I will tell you what I did was I connected more to what I want and what I wanted than what I was afraid of. And that is a skill set that I would like to teach children. I would like to teach executives. I would like to teach um, people in difficult circumstances. When we connect to our fear and we feed our fear and we fertilize our fear, nothing is possible. Literally nothing is possible. And I, look, I have been paralyzed in my life. I, I have. And the only key that I have found that works is when I stop feeding that fear and stop feeding the catastrophization of my life and I feed the possibility. So I was like, okay, here's how much money I make as an executive. Okay. If I got a job at Tim Hortons and if I became a cleaning lady, because I, you know, my Alma in Germany was a cleaning lady and I am a really good cleaner. So if I got like really good at cleaning people's houses, like how much money could I make? And I wasn't committed to, oh, I have to find another executive job. I was, I, I can find work. I, I know I can find work and nothing will be beneath me. I will just do what needs to be done to put food on the table. So I made a plan it is essentially what I'm saying. And the plan was to control my mindset. And I think that's something that we miss. Look, we're, we're told to eat healthy, Jordan. We're told to go to the gym. We're told to walk. We're told to do all those things. And we are not taught that the thoughts that come into our head are automatic thoughts and that we can question those thoughts and that we can replace those thoughts. And that is the one universal skill set that I think everybody needs to know and everybody needs to practice. Because when you don't feel like your, your mind is your enemy and you learn that you can take control back, you open up a world of possibilities. And that's what I think, that's the basis of self-leadership. Controlling your mind, controlling your thoughts, controlling your vision, controlling, like defining your desires. That's what I call self-leadership. And when we practice that, then you're ready to go and lead other people because you've taught yourself what leadership is about. When did you know in your career what your calling was and when you were you know, you said you could look back on your life and there were points to it where you were like, that's what I should be doing. When did you know that, you know, helping the people you do is something you're really thrilled with? Because you could have continued to be a corporate president, maybe a CEO, and, and you are, you're the head of your own company, but it's a, it's a different type of, type of role. It's, it's not, a di- totally different type. Yeah. And I would have been a bad CEO. Let's be clear. I'm not meant to be CEO. I'm meant to be a wingman to, see, to a CEO. I learned in my early forties, which has felt late. I will, I will say there were, there were lots of hints. I, I remember, I, I think it was Oprah Winfrey once. I think she used the analogy of, you know, the universe will give you a whisper and it'll give you a whisper and then it'll speak a little louder and then it'll sort of yell at you. And then it'll give you a two by four to the head to have you pay attention. And so there were a lot of whispers, but it was in, it was in my forties. And I also think, look, I think life is chapters. And so I think when you take each chapter for what it's offering you versus thinking, this is it, this is the place 
that's where I think you really come to know yourself because each, each part of the journey gave me something new. Like I look, I loved having a big title. Like at one point I had a title so long, I didn't think it was going to fit on one card. And did my ego get fed by that? Yes, it did. It really did. I liked it. And that, but that gave me the confidence to speak to executives. Then when I quit that job and I went and I took over the small learning and development company. And it was, look, it was tiny. I got to say I was president, but it was a tiny company. And if we're perfectly honest, I quit the big ass job with the big ass salary. And I took a 60% pay cut. And that job gave me, no, I can, I can do it without a team. I actually do know what I'm doing. I do have what it takes. That was a real proving ground for me. And I remember the first day that I walked into my job, that job, I called my best friend. I was standing on the street in front of the office. And I said to her, I remember this so clearly, this is exactly where I'm meant to be. I know that this was, I know this is exactly where I'm meant to be. This is the perfect job for me. And it was for three years until it wasn't. But at that company, I learned that I really like coaching. So I would also facilitate large gigs. I do large team things. And I, and I was good at it. Like people were always like, oh my God, you're, your presence and you're this and you're that lots and lots of compliments. And I would walk to my car, Jordan, and I would weep. I was exhausted, but like I was emotionally spent because you're standing in front of a room of 250 people and you're giving and you're giving and you're giving and you're giving. I'd curl up in the fetal when I got home. And I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be a long journey if this is what this is going to feel like. And there I discovered one-on-one -on -one conversations. And at that time, I didn't know that it, it was called coaching yet because I would have executives come to me and say, that was a really great event, Michelle. That was a great one day thing, but now what do I do? And I got into these really powerful dialogues about what the future looked like for people. Uh, and I soon discovered that that was coaching and I would walk away from those deep and meaningful conversations energized, like just like, <sighs> and so each journey allowed each part of the journey allowed me to discover a new part of myself. But the discovery was dependent on me listening. And it wasn't about running away from the fear. It wasn't about running away when I was fucking up. And I fucked up a lot, like a lot. I really did. And I did a lot of really great things too. And so I listened to the great things that I was doing. And I tried to do more of those. And I tried to learn from the things that I was doing that were just awful. And I tried to eliminate those. And eventually I got to a place where I was really comfortable in my skin. And I knew that I was meant to coach people. I knew, I knew that this was a calling. And then when I look back, I've been doing it all along. Like I, I've been doing it in each role. People would come into my office, whether they worked for me or whether they didn't. The joke used to be years ago, because I always went up to my sister's cottage and I would drive up and I would walk in the door and my sister would say to me, so who'd you make cry this week? And it wasn't like cry because I was being mean. It was cry because I was asking them powerful questions. Like, well, why are you doing this job? Why is it so important to you that I like you? What are you most afraid of? And they would, and they would weep because I was asking them these powerful questions that was forcing them to connect to the very thing that they were looking to avoid. So I constantly had people cry. And then it became a thing. Like I used to have employees walk into my office and go, you can't make me cry. And the one woman who works with me now, who God bless her, helps me, the woman who does all my technology stuff for me, Jordan, because I'm incompetent. <laughs> she said to me, you're never going to make me cry. And then one day I got her and she was like, damn it. <laughs>
And that was, that was about coaching. That was about connecting people to themselves, connecting people to their inner wisdom and, and having them not be afraid to look at things. And that when you look at things that you're afraid of, you're, what you're actually doing is opening your life up to incredible possibility. So we've talked about some positive things, some negative things. You mentioned you've screwed up some sometimes. You quit that one job we talked about, but what what's something that's happened in your career where you're like, oh, I screwed up or I did not expect for that to happen? Like, is there something that happened ever where you're like, I did not expect that? Could be positive or negative. And was there anything you've learned from that? You, you, you use the word circuitous. And after a first call, I, I had to look that up. I'll be honest. <laughs> well, I will tell you one that sticks with me to this day. I was the senior executive vice president of client services, North America. That was the title that wouldn't fit on the, on the business card. And we had our largest corporate client going out for bid, going out for RFP. And we were doing great. Like we, we had a great relationship. It was with a major bank and our satisfaction ratings were great. Our relationships uh, were great, except for one thing that I never admitted to anybody. So we were putting on this bid, uh, came up with this theme, strive for five. So we were going to secure a contract for five more years. And we were going to have these five out of five ratings with our service team. And it, it like, you know, <laughs> I got in trouble because when the, when the counselors would hit the numbers that we set for them, which was really hard. I would go out on the floor and I would throw confetti around. And finally, <laughs> the cleaners <laughs> went to HR and said, I don't know who's doing all that confetti, but shut that shit down. And, you know, I thought we were, and we had this great sales concept going in. It was like, it was amazing. And I kept the CEO involved. And, and the one thing that I didn't do, because I still had this self-confidence issue, was I did not have a relationship with the senior executive at the bank who was going to be ultimately be making the decision. I was deeply connected to literally everybody else. Like we had everybody covered. We had blue sheeted the tar out of this. Like we knew all of the strategic relationships. And I was supposed to cover the senior executive, but it was a male in banking. And I didn't think I was smart enough. So I didn't. And our competitor did. And our competitor put an offer of a, a signing bonus on the table. It was a million dollars. And because I didn't have a relationship with this gentleman, we were out. And if you went to my CEO now, and my old CEO, and you said, what was the one, like the biggest career mistake Michelle made that she would still, like she still feels badly about, he would tell you. It was the bank RFP. Like he would know exactly because I had to stand in front of all these counselors and all these service people and they had worked their butts off. And I had to say, I screwed up. I was afraid and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I lost us this account. It was all, I, it's to the, like, I just, I, the feeling comes right back. So now when I'm afraid and I still get afraid of calling people, like I still, right. It's like, oh that guy he's so smart or he's so difficult or he's so this or he's so that and it usually is a guy I don't want to call him and then I go right back to that bank thing and I go I have to call him and so I just I just use it to my advantage now to to motivate me so when you call these people that you feel like are quote-unquote smart and the call, call night might not go well do you do you find after you make the call it's it's all good and it's fine and you're able to keep up or do you find 
you know, it, it's super awkward at times. Both. Yeah. Like both, but I'll tell you, look, I had one last week where I was talking to a customer, long time customer. I'm very grateful to them. And I was starting to think, oh, you know, I'm just, I, I do business strategy every year on all my clients. And I was thinking, oh, you know, they've been with me a long time and I was doing a value uh, analysis and my adding value and no, 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 I'm thinking about money and what should my strategy for 2021 be and thinking about the pandemic and who do I need to be in a long-term relationship when it comes to pricing? So I was certainly nervous uh, about uh, the conversation. And then I called him Said we set a date within 30 minutes of, of uh, sorry, I emailed him. We set a, a date within 30 minutes of me emailing him and I got on the call. We're talking and talking and talking. And then I was coming up with these strategies where he could share the cost. And he actually said to me, well, no, I don't, I don't care about the cost at all. Michelle, the cost is mine. And the reason I'd been afraid to call him was like, was because of money. And then he was like, you're making a problem where there's no problem, Michelle. Like, <laughs> okay, good to know. So let's just, let's just come up with a strategy about how we're going to execute. So, you know, again, be careful about what you, you make up in your head, because if you make it up in your head, you can make it come true. Like, you know, I could have, I could have caused a problem. This, this man happens to know me well enough where he was just like, he was like, stop it but i would i would tell everybody out there spend time at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day getting really clear on what it is that you want to create in your life or in your career and then choose your actions based on that don't choose your action based on what you're feeling in the moment so where do you want to be clear about your business going forward? And, you know, what's the change that you hope to continue to make? I think it becomes about reach for me, Jordan. Um, I, you know, I, I love the one-on-one. -on -one. I love the people that I talk to so often at the end of the day, I run up my stairs and I clap because I had a conversation that was incredibly meaningful for obviously my client, but it's meaningful for me too. But the truth is, it's not scalable. the The work that I do is is can be mentally fatiguing. It can encroach on my energetic boundaries, if you will. So, if I want to reach more people, I have to have a new model, and so that's part of you know an online course, for instance. It's part of who do I need to be and what do I need to be open to in terms of expanding, where it's not reliant on that person to person contact. And I don't have all those answers right now, but I know that I'm sitting in that possibility. And I know that that is part of what 2021 is going to bring that the, my business model is going to shift because I'm very connected to the fact that a lot of people need support. If people want to find the course or reach out to you, yep. where, where can people find, find you if they're interested in your services? Um, I do a lot on Instagram, so I'm fairly consistent on Instagram, or we are fairly consistent on Instagram, I have to say, because I have my beautiful Melissa Mora who supports me in that. On my website, so michelleferrari.org, um, I do blog. I do like to write. I have to find more time to do that. I, I get really excited about certain themes. Um, I'm on We're on Facebook a, a little bit, and then um, stay tuned for... January 2021 and we're going to be launching the practice online and it'll give 
it's the beginning, right? It's a sort of a chapter one of learning to control your own narrative. Okay, cool. I've got three questions I want to close it out with. You spoke about a mirror and being a mirror to people, you know, and I listened to the podcast and we had a discussion and you've, you've been through things in life that have, you know, made you who you are today. And you say you, you tell clients a lot of times what they don't want to hear. How did you get that, that toughness to do that? Is that ever scare the heck out of you? Yeah, it people think I enjoy it way more than I do because it's not a it's not a pleasant thing. It's a, a I will say that's a calling. Like I know that I'm in the world to tell people things that they need to hear, not to tell people things that make them comfortable. That's a calling. And does it hurt me sometimes? Cuz I'm the person then that, you know, all my clients will say to you I love her and I hate her. I feel those moments when they hate me. And that's painful. But how I feel about it isn't more important than you stepping into your full potential. So I will always go to that. And where I got it from, I have to tell you, I hope this isn't too long. God bless my mother. My mom got, she's, she's been gone for six years and she got cancer two years before that. And I had the honor of going through that journey with her. It it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. So every day, I had to drive from Toronto to her home in Clarington, Ontario. I picked her up. Then we drove back to Oshawa to the cancer center. We did her treatment. I drove her back to Clarington. So I had a lot of car time with my mom. And I was asking her questions because we knew that it was terminal and we knew we probably didn't have a long time. And she would tell me stories about her life. And I will (laughs) tell you, when my mother retired, she made $26,000 a year. Jordan, I'm going to get really emotional. Sorry. She was an incredible woman. She raised three children on her own. She was a German immigrant. She came over to Canada by herself. All her family was in Germany. She's a really strong woman. And she was, she was a secretary at um, the Department of Agriculture. She worked for all these veterinarians, you know, very learned men. And she was this little German immigrant as the secretary. And I, this one gentleman came over, a vet from India. And my mother and him did not get along. And because my mother was very revered in her office. So all the other vets listened to her, which was unusual. And then this, this doctor, right. He earned his degree. He came over from India and there was this little German woman trying to tell him what to do. And he was like, I'm a doctor. Like I deserve to be respected. And my mother just didn't operate that way. So (laughs) he was talking to her, they were arguing. And he said to her in the argument, (laughs) you're, a racist, you're being rude to me because I'm Indian. And my mother looked at him and said, no, I'm being rude to you because you're an asshole. (laughs) And I, so I just snorted on your podcast. And my mother told me this story and I'm driving and I pulled over and I was like, mom, I didn't stand a chance. This is why I do what I do. Like I am you, you, it began with you. So I got that, that mirror quality from her. That's a great story. It really is. What's the one thing you've been doing during COVID to keep yourself either in mental or physically great shape? Is there something you've done that you always have done or just developed during COVID? There's there's two things that I, I leaned into more heavily. I've done heavily. I've done them before, but I really leaned into them uh, heavily. I have a naturopath. I've got a weight problem, so I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I put on a lot of weight. And I've been trying to get it off. It hasn't been easy. And I found this incredible woman 
who, because I support a lot of other people, she is a godsend because she supports me. And sure, we talk about nutrition, but we really actually spend a lot of time talking about my mental health. And she supports me in making decisions, uh, nutrition and otherwise, and making sure that I stay whole. And and uh, her name's Dr. Lindsay Walker, and she is she's literally she is literally a godsend. I I wouldn't have made it through this without her. She's just been a vessel for me. And the other thing, I have I have a wonderful physical trainer, and um, he's been good enough. Uh, we've done training outside. He comes he comes to me. He's a wonderful young man. He's a he's a twenty six year old uh, man who has the spirit of an eighty year old, just really wise. And he works with me where I am and makes me feel safe enough to, even though I'm overweight and out of shape, he he just makes me feel safe enough to try. And so, again, I I gone to what I always know, which is get a network. I can't do it by myself. I need, I need support people. So that's been my strategy. Okay. Last question. I think you said once on your podcast, like you would have either been a comedian or a lounge singer that you might burst into song. What's the song you burst into most in the last, I don't know, three months. Mandy, Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow. I remember all my life. Oh, you have a very good voice. Wow. Raining down as cold as ice. I actually did it on the porch. So a couple times. Were you ever a singer? Well, I sang all through high school. Listen, that is the path I didn't follow. And if they let old people on American Idol, I would go. Because I was (laughs) born, like, I'm mad at Celine Dion. Like, God bless her, she's fine. But I'm just telling you, if Renee had met me, I would have had a whole different career. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, Michelle, thanks so much for uh, for doing this. Really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. There you have it. Thanks for checking out It's Not a Straight Line. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, and if you can, leave me a review, provide me some feedback, and I wish you all the best as you find your way in your career and life.